The world is like a ride at an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. I can tell you from experience, the effect you have on others is the most valuable currency there is. Don't think, feel. It is like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger, or you will miss all that heavenly glory. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Hey brothers, I hope this episode finds you exceptionally happy and healthy. I'm finally getting back into the swing of things with the podcasting, which I'm very happy about because it's one of my favorite aspects of my work. I thoroughly enjoy bringing you guys unique guests and interesting perspectives. And today's episode is no exception. The gentleman we have on, Mr. Dan Dietrich, is a very self-actualized, accomplished, and just generally fantastic human being. Big thanks to my friend Shane Eitner for making this happen. Dan is a friend of Shane's and, and Shane convinced me to have Dan on the show when I didn't know him and I'm glad I took a chance because he's just a wonderful, wonderful man and he's going to drop some real knowledge in this episode. I wanted to let you guys know that I'm expanding my retreat schedule for 2020, adding in another one, which is going to be in May in Joshua Tree, California. I'm calling this one The Bridge because I've designed it to take you from where you are in your life to where you want to be and amongst other things, we're going to be having workshops on health, wealth, relationships, career, sexuality, and there's also going to be a couple of ayahuasca ceremonies that are, that are going to tie it all together. And if you've been feeling the call to do ayahuasca, as I'm sure many of you have, or if you've been at all interested in it, this is going to be probably the best opportunity you'll ever have to do it in a safe, exciting, well-planned environment. You know, I've done many ayahuasca ceremonies in my life and a lot of them were less than ideal because the set and setting wasn't great or there was no integration after the ceremony and there was no proper preparation before the ceremonies. And that's not going to be the case with, with this particular event. It's going to be an exceptionally transformative, well-run and effective retreat. So if you guys are interested, there's 12 places, eight are pretty much spoken for already. Best thing to do is email me, liberationmentor at gmail.com, and we can discuss if this is something that's suitable for you. Okay, guys, so let's dive into the episode with Dan Dietrich. Enjoy. Okay, Dan, I just want to thank you for coming on the show. For those of you listening, this is a friend of a friend. I've just met him 20 minutes ago, and it uh, seems like it's going to be a great show. There's a, there's a great vibe from this gentleman. His name's Dan Dietrich. We're sitting in his home up in uh, the hills in Los Angeles. And uh, Dan, thank you so much for agreeing to have this conversation. Oh, absolutely. So let's talk about, um, just before we started recording, you mentioned how 90% of businesses are started by people who are foreign born in the United New States. New businesses, yes. New businesses, uh, yeah. right? Which, um, you know, I spoke to you about potentially calling this show Self-Made Man, and um, we've decided against that. But why that particular title sprang out to me is because... I have a friend who I was discussing success with, and he said to me, he said, man, what I've realized is that most, most guys who are rich and successful have rich and successful dads. And I, I didn't agree with him, but it, it really made me think. And I, I started questioning everything that I was doing. And I was like, man, is, is this really even possible? You know, someone who isn't, who doesn't have a rich dad that paved the way for him. And it's obvious that you, or from the little I know about you, that you didn't get a leg up. I mean, you came here 
and started at the bottom with everyone else, right? Is that correct? Yes, I come from a big family. I'm the oldest of 12. Uh, so I'm, I have 11 younger brothers and sisters. Okay. And so I was living in the Philippines at the time and I left home. Um, my dad wanted me to work in his business. Um, at the time he was doing import exports. So when I came to the U.S., I had nothing. Mm-hmm. I did have a little bit of money. I, I was in a, a couple movies, but at the time they were shooting Platoon and all these American movies in the Philippines because mm-hmm. they simulated the Vietnamese jungle. Mm-hmm. So I did come with a little bit of money, but when I say a, middle, a little bit of money, we're talking thousands of dollars, not, sure. not a huge amount to, to change your life. And when did you come here? Uh, 1987. Yeah. Nice. April, 1987. Okay. And I remember f- it well because it was life-changing. I'm sure. How old were you then? I was just turned 18. Okay. Um, and uh, landed in Los Angeles. And, yeah. you know, I, I spent my first few years just traveling the country just to see what America was like. Amazing. I can't even, um, I mean, I remember I did something similar when I was 19. I came over um, on a vacation for three months and I just, I traveled coast to coast on a Greyhound bus. And yeah, it was just a wonderful experience. And I, I really regretted that I had to leave. So it's so cool to hear that now you're here and you're ready to, to make things happen. And what was the first, uh, you were a valet initially, is that right? Um, I, I did a bunch of odd jobs. I mean, okay. as when you come somewhere and you have zero skills, but you're willing to work, you can find work. And that's the okay. one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize is in America, if you want to work, you can find work. Sure. And people who say they can't find work, they're not looking hard enough. Exactly. Um, and you have to be willing to do whatever. Even today, you know, I'm, I, I'm, I'm building homes. I will get down. If, 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 if something's not happening, I, there's just no job that's beneath me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's inspiring to people that you work with when they see someone who's, you know, technically their boss jump in there and, you know, start pulling the loads. And okay. I think that's extremely important. And the more you know about a business, the more you've worked every avenue of it, the better you are at managing the business. That's so so true. in the beginning, I worked every job imaginable. Um, first um, business I would say that I had was in valet. I was living in Palm Springs. I got a job as a valet parker, which paid tips, which was good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I worked at a deal with uh, Sonny Bono, um, who at the time was married. Sure. It was before Cher? It was, at, it was after Cher. Okay. He married an, another girl, but he had a restaurant in Palm Springs called Bono's in North Palm Springs. And he didn't really have a valet service. So I pitched him the idea because mm-hmm. um, I was doing valet for another service. So I took over the valet and I ran my own valet. So that was the first time like, I ran a business. And I'm like, oh, wow. Well, you can actually run a business. So I had to, you know, make sure people showed up and, you know, we, we did a thing where most valets, they get to keep the tips, but it was unfair because when everyone leaves at the end of the night is when all the tips were made. So I made a system where everyone put all the pooled, all the tips and everyone split the tips based on the amount of hours they work. And it was a really good system. So everyone gave really good service because everyone knew no matter what, if they parked the cars in the beginning and then went home, they were still going to participate in the tips. That's great. Great. And then that gave you your first taste of the entrepreneurial spirit. And you said to yourself, okay, this is what I want to do. Absolutely. And it was customer. I mean, every person that drove up was different. So we learned that people who drive Jaguars in particular were different than people who drove, you know, Mercedes, Interesting. a a big difference. So I learned right away that you don't treat all the customers the same. You you give them all the same level of service, but some customers need a little more handholding. Others, you know, want just to be left alone. Okay. So it it was, to me, the valet service was a great opportunity to say, hey, I can, I can actually run a business. Mm -hmm. And learn a bit about human nature. And I suppose you probably learn a lot about the way wealthy people think by hanging out with, well, not hanging out with, by serving those people and 
parking their cars and getting to know yeah. them. And, you know, the people going in were different when they were coming out after they had a meal and had a couple of drinks. Like yeah. you could see people coming in anxious and kind of in a bad mood after mm-hmm. they, you know, had a full belly and a couple of glasses of wine. They were super nice on the way That's out. Cool. So, yeah. 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 It was, I, I look back on those days because I was young. Everyone I worked with was young and it just, it was in Palm Springs in the evenings, you know, especially in the summer, mm-hmm. it was, the weather was beautiful and it was just, it was really good times. That's so. cool. Yeah. I mean, I just imagining in my mind, it must've been so exciting and so much fun. Uh, you mentioned something earlier, I think before we started the recording about how, um, you know, coming from a third world place like the Philippines, you well, people who come from those sort of, sorts of situations and backgrounds, when they arrive in a, in a country like the United States where there's so much opportunity, they're the ones who really just dive in and make things happen because they're not worried about the fact that their latte is maybe three degrees off or they're just happy to have running water and, and a rule of law government and infrastructure and stuff like that. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, freedom and the rule of law are what the, the, the ground in America isn't magical. It's the fact that we respect the rule of law, we respect private property, mm-hmm. and we have freedom. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes America great. Not that the ground here is, is magical. Mm, I've never so, heard that said before. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, I, I agree with you. but Because when you look at the third world, there's a lot of corruption. I mean, there's corruption in every country, even in the U.S. But in the third world, it's really hard to get ahead because everything is corrupt from the lowest level to the highest level. Mm-hmm. So the rule of law, respect for private property, and then freedom. I mean, we have unbelievable freedoms here that we take for granted. Sure. Do you do you worry that maybe the the levels of corruption are, are rising to the point, and, and also the, the the curtailment of freedoms is getting to the point where everything you love about this place and everything that makes it work is being jeopardized? It's a concern, but you know this country has survived multiple horrible things: the Civil War. Mm-hmm. So. I think there's enough good people here and enough respect for the rule of law that even though we're being challenged on so many fronts, I think we'll get through it. And I think, you know, illegal immigration, you know, what, no matter what your opinion on it, I think is, is very important because when you bring in an unlimited amount, you don't control who comes into the country. You have cultures that are bringing in the same level of thinking that made those countries the way they are. Mm-hmm. So people are trying to leave these countries because they're corrupt and because there's no rule of law and they don't respect freedoms. But if we don't control who comes in here and if enough people come in here with that mindset, the United States will change. Like I said, the ground here isn't magical. Okay. So I, I really have no agenda or real strong beliefs on this either way, but I, just for the sake of interesting conversation, what would you say to someone who responded uh, to that by saying America was built on on that very thing. Like yeah, immigrants. on immigration, not illegal immigration. So immigration to this country created a, America, and we still want in, immigration. Mm-hmm. We just want to control. It's like we have we have uh, doors on our houses. Why do we have doors on our houses? Because we want to control who comes in it, in and out. Sure. It's not that we don't want visitors. We just want to decide who those visitors mm-hmm. are, and that's the way this country should be. It's interesting because, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm an immigrant here myself, uh, a legal immigrant, I'm happy to say. Uh, and I was discussing this with my wife recently. We just watched the John Oliver piece on, on immigration and how difficult it was for people to immigrate here legally. Mm-hmm. And, and the, it, was, it was quite a scathing piece that was claiming that it's, it's been made so difficult and there's so many waiting lists and uh, it's so hard for people to get in the United States. And I kind of, I mean, I got lucky. It only took three years for me to get in. 
but I, I was still, I just, I really got irritated with the, the tone of the piece because it was, I just said to my wife, I mean, so, so what? Like, just because you want to come to America doesn't mean you're automatically entitled to come here. You know, like I want to go to the moon, but I can't, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's like, it's difficult to get in here for a reason, right? Well, because we're, we're, fil we're filtering and we're, or the United States is filtering and it's trying to protect this incredible democracy and system of, or, or group of systems that it's created. And I understand that one of the things I said to my wife as well, which didn't go down too well, which is that, look, there's certain places you've had, you had to have been, you have to have been to the, the real third world. Like I'm talking parts of deepest, darkest Africa or, or, or certain parts on uh, the subcontinent where human life is not really valued. There's huge corruption, as you mentioned, the social systems are really poor infrastructures is really lacking. And when you, if you just say like tomorrow, if we suddenly said, okay, the borders are open, anyone can come into the United States, anyone, as long as you can afford a plane ticket or get on a boat and come here, it would be a third world country within 10 years because everyone would just arrive here expecting like to be able to enjoy it and take, take what they wanted. And then it would be a Bangladesh or a whatever within a brief amount of time. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, we, there's only so many people the United States can take in. And, and when, when the country was, was really taking off during the industrial revolution, we needed anybody and everybody. Today, we don't. Mm -hmm. Technology has changed that. At the turn of the century, I think it was like eight people out of 10 worked in agriculture. Sure. Today, today it's a, it's a fraction because machines do all the jobs. So we don't need the manpower that we used to need. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, the, the problem I have is, is the obfuscation between immigration and illegal, illegal immigration. Yeah. You know, people try to, you know, put you off as anti-immigrant when you, when you're talking about legal immigration, we mm -hmm. have laws and we're either a nation of laws or we aren't. So the whole idea that you're anti-immigrant because you want laws enforced just doesn't make any sense to me. Mm -hmm. And, and we have, you know, half the country or, or I should say half of the, the, um, politicians who try and obfuscate that fact between immigration, which is legal mm -hmm. and we're not, nobody's against that and illegal immigration. It's if you go to a bank and someone cuts the line, it's, I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican, you're going to be like, Hey buddy, get in line. Sure. If you're in a movie theater and someone cuts the line for popcorn, everyone agrees. You don't get to cut the line, mm -hmm. but all of a sudden at the border, we have half the people go, Oh, it's okay to cut the line. All the people who stood in line, paid their dues, went through all the hell it is to get into this country legally. Mm -hmm. What's the point when you can just walk, when you can cut the line? Yeah, that's, yeah, so, I agree. I agree with you. I mean, I also do have compassion for, you know, the people living in these horrific conditions. And I, I get like, if I lived in Syria, I would, at this point, I would probably take my ch chances and try to get in here illegally because you don't really have an, an, another option, right? I mean, it's easy for me to say I met an American girl and got a green card like through marriage, and, but I get it. I get people's circumstances can be really dire. And the thing that's pushing you into the other country, the thing that's behind you can be horrific, right? It could be a dictatorship. It could be a war. It could be famine. I understand that. But I also understand, I mean, if we just remove all the filters and all the controls this place will become like those other places that the yeah, people I mean, are America escape. is the most compassionate country in the world. We already taken more immigrants and more um, people from war torn areas than any other country in the world. Okay. So 
people who wanted to to say, oh, we're, we have constraints, we're still the most generous too. If you look at charities, Americans give far more than any other country in the world. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to point the finger, but if you look at who's doing the most, by far we're doing the most to help people. Sure. And I, I totally agree with you. If, if, if I was in a horrible situation, I would probably do whatever it took to come here too. But at, at some point we can't take everybody. And I think it goes back to the concept of, of, of the idea of, of life being fair. Life isn't unfair. It isn't fair. Yeah. And from the moment we're born until we die, life isn't fair and it never will be. I think mm -hmm. what we do is we do the best we can to help people who are less fortunate. I just had this thought of uh, reading a book in which uh, there's a shipwreck and they have a, a few of the, the crew managed to get onto the life raft or the, the, the lifeboat. And then as they're paddling away from the shipwreck, a lot of the other sailors are floating in the water and they try to get onto the, the, the lifeboat. And the sailors on the boat have to beat those guys off because they know if everyone who's trying to get onto the lifeboat gets onto the lifeboat, then the lifeboat sinks and everyone dies. And to me, that's the way I kind of look at the, the immigration thing is, Yes, I do want the Mexican family who's struggling, you know, and, and wants a better life for themselves. I yeah. do want them to have a better life for themselves. And I completely understand that. But again, if we just open all the doors, this will be the life for us that sinks, right? Yeah. You know, we have to kind of control it. Dan, um, let me ask you, uh, again, it's a massive segue, but one of the things that keeps popping into my mind is uh, our mutual friend, Shane, he gave me a few of the, the quotes that you, you live by or the quotes that you've shared with him. And the one that keeps coming into my mind um, is... No man is my enemy. No man is my friend, but every man is my teacher. Can you tell me a little bit about how you found that and how? It I don't remember what book it's from, but what I try and do is whenever I read a book, I highlight stuff that's important to me. Mm -hmm. And then I take those highlighted things and I just edit it into another book. So I have a book with all the highlighted things that mattered for me. Oh. So I review that book once a year. So basically if I read say 50 books on, on self-help, all those 50 books come back to me because Jeez. I read the portions that spoke to me. And that book, like I could share that with someone else, but it won't have the same meaning because we all take different things from different books. So what's exactly important right. to you is if you read a book, we forget stuff. And, and books have everything that we're talking about, all the answers that we can come up with. Someone's already written about it. Mm -hmm. So what I try and do is, is highlight a book that I like so that that saying I like that saying specifically because it makes me feel like anybody I meet, what can this person teach me? And recognize that that person is superior to me in some way. Mm -hmm. And if I can honestly find out what that is, not only am I going to learn from him, but at some point, if I continue a relationship with that person or I see them again and I let them know that, hey, thank you for teaching me this, that person is going to be like, wow, that person really recognized the value I brought. Yeah, that's really cool. You know, I, the first thing that occurred to me when I heard that is, where my mind went with it was that it's a kind of a, a Zen approach to life, as in you shouldn't expect anything from anyone, really. Like even your friends, like expect your friends to betray you, but also expect your enemies to potentially help you or teach you in some way. And I, those are probably two harsh examples, but that that came to me. Um, is that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can learn a lot from a homeless person because they have survived a lot of odds. They're incredibly resourceful, no mm -hmm. matter what you think of them, to be able to, you know, live the way they do. So mm -hmm. it's like I try not to judge anybody, but just look from them and say, what can I learn from this person? And I think ultimately it makes you better because everybody in some area is better than you, whether it's in, you know, finance or health mm -hmm. or, you know, 
That's 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 interesting. I think that's a really um, healthy and powerful way to uh, to move through life. Dan, you're obviously very successful, and to me, the more I study, the more I realize is that successful people have successful habits or habits that build that success. And Shane mentioned that you have a specific morning routine that you go through. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, I mean, I like to start the morning at a little coffee roaster called mm-hmm. the Roaster here in uh, Sherman Oaks. Yeah, uh, we drove by it. <laughs> yeah, it's it mainly because it gives me time to collect my thoughts on. I like to have a list, so every day I have a list of things I need to do, and that mm-hmm. list is divided between them: what's important and what's urgent. So, to me, I always focus on doing what's important. And this again is not my. I didn't come up with this. This mm-hmm. is from another book too. I focus on doing what's important because the urgent stuff will always be there. Mm-hmm. And I classify urgent stuff as like, you need to do the dishes, you need to feed the pets, you know, you need to pick up the dry cleaning, you need to go you know, pick up your kids from school. Those are the urgent things that, all, that are always there. Mm-hmm. So if you let the urgent things guide your day, you will never get to the important stuff because there will always be the urgent things. They'll never go away. Mm-hmm. And those urgent things, some people you know, use those as a crutch because they're convenient. They're easy. We know how to do the dishes. Mm-hmm. We know how to go to the grocery store. And we use that to put off doing the important stuff, which is usually stuff we haven't done before. And mm-hmm. stuff we haven't done before, we're afraid of. Sure. So to me, I focus every single day on doing the important stuff first, because at the end of the day, if I don't get everything done on the list, I feel content and satisfied. In fact, happy that, oh my gosh, I got the important stuff done. Yeah, that's interesting. One, one of my previous guests... Andrew Kuhn, um, also a hugely successful individual, he said something that I had known but forgotten, actually, uh, but I've really been focusing on lately, which is if you don't run the day, it runs you. And that was so, I mean, that's such a profound little piece of wisdom. If you just wake up and, you know, approach the day as it comes, it's infinitely inferior to, you know, what I do the night before a work day for me is I, I literally plan out, okay, I need to do these three important things or these things that are going to make me money or whatever it might be. And then the next morning when I wake up, it's not a question of what am I going to do? It's like, I know what I need to do. It's written down. Right. And uh, it's cool to hear that, that you do that as well. I think yeah, if you important. take the time in the morning, like we all have a lot to do and the busier I am, the more insistent I am on, on having my relaxation and coffee to go over it. Because it's like, if you're trying to get something done that you haven't done, especially if you haven't done before, Making a plan is far more efficient than just going at it. A lot of people just say, I got so much to do. I just got to start. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, that's true. Mm-hmm. Starting is important. But sitting there and making a plan and planning it out and saying, okay, this is the absolute most important thing. If this is the only thing I get done today, I'll be content. Mm-hmm. And then recognizing, too, when you make your decisions. I'm, I make the best decisions probably between like 10 and 1. Interesting. And I realize that I am the most productive. So for me, between 10 and 1, those are sacred hours to me because I am always the most productive. I realize that I make the best decisions. I get the most done. I'm the most productive. So I really don't want to waste those hours between 10 and 1 because that's when I just get the most done. So like... Yeah. Oh, there's so much rep- There's so much encapsulated in what you just said that I want to unpack. I mean, first of all, I'd, that idea of... I think everyone has a natural rhythm, right? Based on, on their, you know, their physiology and their, their makeup. And the, for me, I actually am most productive reasonably late at night, like maybe between nine and 12 is when my brain really like clicks in. And I'm quite jealous or guarded of that time because as you yeah. said, like that's when, that's when you make the best decisions. 
you also said that no matter how busy you, even when you're especially busy, you still take set this time aside for for yourself to to relax in this ritual. There's something I heard um, many years ago, which I'm very fond of. It's a, a Buddhist saying, which is, you should meditate for 30 minutes every day, except when you're too busy. Then you should meditate for an hour. Exactly. Yeah, I absolutely love that. That's a hugely powerful thing. What what do you have going on at the moment, Dan? If you don't mind sharing, I mean, obviously you don't have to get into too many details, but you've you've taken this path through. I know you, as you said, you were initially a valet or you were hustling, doing anything that you could. And then it's my understanding you started getting into more and more complex businesses or more and more sophisticated businesses. What are you doing at the I've moment? I've a lot of stuff. Right now, I actually have a um, development in Texas, just outside of Dallas on mm-hmm. Lake Levon, where we're building luxury small homes. So okay. I've seen there's been a, a movement towards tiny homes. Um, I don't think tiny homes long-term are sustainable for a number of reasons. The main reason is, is that you're never going to be able to build a really beautiful tiny home community near jobs and everything that you need because cities don't collect revenue from a tiny home. A tiny home is considered personal property. It doesn't pay taxes. Is that so? I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons why people want to live in it. So I've looked at cars. I was in the car business for a number of years in uh, collector. I was a concierge basically for a lot of people in the entertainment business okay. who you know bought and sold collector and exotic cars. and what I noticed about cars is like, I would pay attention to, you know, beyond just the exotic stuff, but like cars that were the best value dollar per mile. And I looked at the Prius. The Prius to me is still probably one of the best cars to drive dollar per mile. Mm-hmm. I mean, it even blows away the Tesla because the Tesla has huge depreciation. Electricity isn't free. A lot mm-hmm. of times it bumps you into higher tier levels. So you end up paying more. Mm-hmm. So, but nobody has done for housing, what Prius has done for, for cars. That's interesting. So my, my concept is, is I want to build the Prius of, of, of houses, but luxury. So that's what I'm working right now. We're doing a, a concept and we're building 10 small luxury homes. They're about 600 square feet right on a lake. So they're going to be beautiful, ultra, ultra efficient. We're looking at probably cost of $1 a day for electricity, even through the heat and winter. Unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and uh, these are, they're, how many rooms approximately per, per home? They're, they're, they're going to be designed for a single occupancy, but okay. two people could live there comfortably. So is it, so would it one be bedroom? similar to the, like the shipping container homes that, that we see, that kind of thing? Yeah, but we're building them real construction. Oh, so I see. I see. It, it's not, they're not mobile homes. They're not RVs. It, what, what, what I'm noticing is there's a huge transition from people living in big houses to smaller houses. So if you look at the history of, of, of America, go back, say 150 years, people lived in houses that were single room houses, whole families, 400 square feet. Mm -hmm. So you'd have a a family of say six living in a 400 square foot house. And in 2017, I think we hit the the record. So every year American houses got bigger while American families got smaller. Mm -hmm. So I think 2017, the average American home was 2,600 square feet from 400 square feet. And the average American family was like 2.2. So we went from a large family living in a single small house to not even three people living in a 2,600 square foot mm-hmm. house. Last year, I believe, was the first time that American houses actually got smaller. I think it went down to 2,500 square mm-hmm. feet. They're still far too large for what we need. Yeah. So my concept is, is it's getting harder and harder for the average person to afford to own a home. Mm-hmm. So my concept is, and people want luxury. We have Instagram now. We have the internet. We see how the best people, the richest people in the world live. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants that. So what about if we create the environment, not just the house, 
but the community that people want to live in and shrink it to the to the price that people can afford. So take, take Beverly Hills, just shrink Beverly Hills. So that's what I'm trying to do with this community. I don't know if it'll work, but mm -hmm. that's the concept. It's a great idea. I mean, uh, the first, the question I'm interested in is, the, the people that I've met, like you, I, one of my mentors uh, in England, again, hugely successful guy, I noticed that he just, he just thinks differently. Right? You know, that's that, if I'm not mistaken, that's the slogan, one of Apple's slogan, slogans was think different, right? And all the, all, most of the wealthy, successful people I know, they got there through, obviously they worked hard, but it wasn't necessarily just working hard because there's a lot of uh, broke people who work hard as well, right? It's, it's, it's this idea of just thinking differently. And I'm wondering, is that something you, you inherently always had or did you, or was it something you had to train yourself to do? Um, I think it's a combination of both. I think I've always thought a little differently, but I've also really focused on trying to see things from a different perspective. Sure. Yeah. I mean, when I was in the car business, I got there because an opportunity presented myself. I met a celebrity at the racetrack and I saw a need. He had a bunch of vehicles, a bunch of cars, a bunch of motorcycles that weren't being taken care of. And it's just like, wow, how could I, this guy's got a need. How can I turn this into a business idea? So I went to his business manager and I said, hey, listen, your celebrity's got all these cars and he can't drive them because they're all, you know, the batteries, you know, are, mm -hmm. are dead. The tire pressures don't have any air in them. The cars are dirty. I said, let me, give me three months of mm -hmm. it. And after three months, you don't like what I do then no, no contract, no nothing. You can let me go. Just uh -huh. give me three months. And so That's great. That, that was thinking differently. Most people and, and a lot of people had met this guy, saw the condition of his, of, of his collection and didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. So it's a combination of yes, naturally, I kind of look at things differently, but at the same time, constantly asking myself, where's the opportunity? And there's a saying, once you see opportunity once, you'll see it for the rest mm -hmm. of your life. That's cool. So you have to train yourself to see that opportunity. And yeah. that, the first business I really had was the valet business. I was working for a valet company and I saw an opportunity. Hey, I could run this myself. I could have my own valet business. That's great. This December last year is when I, I really internalized this and I decided to live my life according to it, which is this, the idea that uh, how you do one thing is how you do everything. Right. And Shane, our mutual friend told me that when he worked with you in um, your motorcycle shop, uh, well, not sh like um, mechanic kind of, yeah. uh, I'm struggling for the word, but it wasn't a store that sold motorcycles. It was like a garage that repaired. Yeah, them. we did repair. And yeah. We built bikes and got them ready for the track and upgraded them. Yeah. Well, he, Shane was telling me how in your shop, in your workshop, it was, everything was pristine and each tool had a very specific place and everything was, it was a system. You would wipe down everything in a certain order and that, that workshop, no one left until it was pristine and clean and I mean, I, man, I loved hearing that because for me, again, it's how you do one thing is how you do everything. And now in your home, it's spotless and everything is neat and there's clean lines. And that really resonates with me because I think that um, if your external circumstances and your external world is cluttered and dirty, it, it's usually an indication that there are other things in your life that are cluttered and, and unkempt and including your business affairs or your relationships or whatever it might be. So, I mean, does that resonate with you? Do you think there's some truth to that? Oh, absolutely. I think the sum of your life or anything, how good your personal relationships are, how good your businesses are, are based on the decisions you make. Mm -hmm. And it, that's easy to say. Yeah, obviously better decisions, uh, better results. But 
to get better decisions, there's so many things we have to do. We don't realize that good sleep makes better decisions. Mm -hmm. Good nutrition makes better decisions. Good exercise makes better decisions. And good, good people around you as well plays a huge role. Good people around you. Mm -hmm. And what I, what I learned is I make better decisions when I, when things around me are clean and organized, I don't make good decisions when there's a mess. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's important knowing how you make good decisions. Sure. And I think if anyone's honest with themselves, the truth is we probably all make better decisions when our, when our environment is tidy and uncluttered. And I, I mean, some people say, oh, that's not the way my mind works, but I just think that's laziness. I think the, the, some of the best ideas, if you read uh, a lot of books on entrepreneurship and people who have you know, broken the mold and done things differently, you'll notice almost all of them had their big idea moment in a shower, on an airplane or on vacation. Hmm. Why? Because their mind in a shower, you're, you don't you don't see anything. Your mind, you can think. There's there's not this distraction yeah. around you. On a plane, you can't be distracted by too much stuff because you're stuck on a plane. Mm -hmm. Or on vacation, you're in a beautiful location that's not. Nobody goes on vacation and wants a room that's cluttered. Yeah. You know, luxury hotels are very streamlined and clean. Sure, your mind can think. That's that's interesting. I never put that together. I mean, what comes to mind now is I have one client who. I think the reason he's unable to, to take things to the next level is the same can be said for your digital life. You know, a lot of people's computers and desktops and browsers are just cluttered with hundreds of tabs and windows and files and folders and everything is just all over the place where I think there's, you need to, I call it digital hygiene. You need to, you know, engage in digital hygiene and every few weeks, because there's this tendency towards chaos, you need to sit down and, and just tidy everything up and close things down and put things in the right place. And that makes a big difference for me. And I think, I mean, for those listening, you might want to try that. I think it'll help you, especially if you do abstract work on a, on a computer. Um, I would agree a hundred percent. Cause yeah. I think our minds are just, just, just a, a really good computer, but even the best computers in the world, if they have so much stuff in memory, they function slower. They don't put out, you know, exactly. better results. So I think having lots of stuff around you, slows you down because whether you realize it or not, everything that's, that you physically can see is affecting your decision-making. And, and it's everything as well. Not only is it affecting your decision-making, but it is each little stimulus is looking for some of your attention and that, then your that, attention that becomes scattered. It, yeah. People don't realize by having clutter, by holding on to stuff, they're like, oh, I don't want to get rid of this because this has value. You need to value your time. And I, I basically have set a personal value for my time. And I think everyone should. Sure. And as you get older and you learn a lot more, you should raise that value. So when I look at something, should I keep this or should I not? I say, what is the value? What, what do I value my time at per hour? Okay. This thing is so insignificant to me. I'm going to get rid of it because my time is worth so much more than it being in my way and me having to think where I'm going to yes. move it around to. And every once in a while, I'll be like, oh, I wish I hadn't thrown that away. But the amount of freedom that's given my brain mm -hmm. to focus on the stuff that's really important. So when I, when people have a, when they're trying to declutter or get rid of stuff in their lives, if they set a value of, of their time, it makes it real easy to get rid of stuff. I value my time at this, this, this thing that I'm holding on to is taking away from sure. that value. Get rid of it. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm always blown away by when I'm in a, a house full of clutter and I'll, you'll see like a stack of magazines or something that has, you know, probably a real world material value of sense. There might be some sort of um, emotional attachment to it, but usually it's not the case. And I just, I just think to myself, like, 
for example, um, I have these friends that have this storage room at the back of their house uh, in, the, in the garden, the shed. And my friend and I went out to get something from it the other day. I was at his place and I looked inside and I just thought to myself, like everything in the shed, if we were to sell it and liquidate it now, mm-hmm. it's probably worth like 200 bucks. Yeah. And I'm like, it's just like, just the hassle of keeping it. And just, I just thought to myself, I just have thrown this stuff all out yeah. years ago. Right. But obviously everyone thinks differently and we have different values and I'm not saying our way is the right way, but it's just a different way to think about it. Just out of interest sake, Dan, would you be willing to share what you value your time as? Uh, no, because I think it's kind of conceited. Um, I think what's important is that you know what you value your time at Mm -hmm. and it helps you make decisions. It really helps me make decisions because it helps me. I like to do everything because I'm very particular and I've learned that I value my time at a certain thing. It's a lot cheaper for me to bring someone else in to take care of stuff for me because I can't do everything. Mm -hmm. I have to delegate. So by making a decision of what my time is valued at, it makes it a lot easier for me to get people to do other stuff Mm -hmm. for me because you can't do everything. Sure. Well, whatever you value it as, mm-hmm. I value it as very, very high. And oh, okay. thank, thank you for you. <laughs> sharing it with us in, in today's um, chat. And that was just yeah. a, a real goldmine of, of wisdom. And, you know, the thing, I, I only want to speak to people. I don't want to hear from someone who's broke about how to become successful or someone who's fat about how to get into shape, you know. And it's clear you you walk the walk as well as talk the talk. So I just want to thank you so much for your time today, Dan. I truly appreciate that. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, yeah anytime. Thank you, brother. I think it's probably pretty clear to anyone listening that that is a world-class human being. You know, the way that particular episode came about is, as I mentioned at the start of the show, I was introduced to Dan by my friend Shane Eitner, who is himself a wonderful human being and is going to definitely feature on on one of our episodes soon. But Shane just kept saying, you've got to meet this guy, Dan, you've got to meet this guy, Dan. And Dan lives in LA. And when I was there late last year, Shane said, look, Dan's in town. Uh, let's let's go meet him. Let's record an episode of the show. So we went up to his home in the in the hills in LA. And first of all, his home is absolutely beautiful, absolutely impeccable in in its order and cleanliness. And you know, one of the things I love living about I love about living in the United States is that you know I'm really forced to raise my game here on all levels. Because the thing about the United States is that there's no room in the society for second second class or or, or low quality of anything right like everyone because business has been taken to such a zenith here everyone does almost everyone does everything to a high standard you know and i had always considered myself a very detail-oriented very orderly very neat person and then i walked into dan's home and he gave us a tour and i realized you know i thought it was a black belt and hit me i'm actually a purple belt because this guy is i don't think i've met anyone at that level of, of orderliness and cleanliness. And I'm a big believer that your external surroundings are very often reflective of your internal processes. So if you have a dirty home or dirty office or dirty car, it's usually not always, but it's usually an indicator that your mind is, is not at peace or your mind is cluttered. And I very quickly figured out that Dan uh, his his internal processes matched his external environment and that was a real pleasure and you know I, I've always been a big proponent and a avid consumer of personal development material and when I started speaking to Dan it was like interesting because it's very seldom that I hear someone whose knowledge and wisdom on on those particulars or, or breadth of knowledge at least I should say on, on those subjects 
far exceeds mine and he's really did i mean he's read all the books i've read and more and he's you know got far more uh sophisticated habit systems and action plans and things like that and it's just such a pleasure for me because after spending time with him when i left i went and raised my game you know which i love i absolutely love that feeling so big thank you to dan for his time I'm just reminding you guys about my next retreat that's going to be in a Joshua Tree in California. I actually did a trial run of that retreat last year in, in April. I took eight people there, myself plus eight, so it was nine in total. And every single one of those men had a major breakthrough and transformation in their lives. So uh, I'm excited for the 12 men that come with on this one. It's going to be it's going to be a truly profound experience. Remember, if you want to if you want to come on that one, there's four places left. So email me liberationmentor at gmail.com and we'll figure out if it's right for you. Also, my coaching schedule still has several places on it for this year. Going to be a capacity pretty soon though. So if you are interested in getting some coaching on how to take your life to the next level in pretty much any aspect of your health, relationships, career and success, hit me up at the same email address, liberationmentor.gmail.com and we'll have a talk and see if I can help you and if you're suited to the type of work I do. Cool guys, I hope you enjoyed the show and sending you love and light wherever you are. Peace out.